Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at theasc.com. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill. My guest today is Darius Wolski, ASC, a director of photography you all know from his work on films like Prometheus, Alice in Wonderland, The Counselor, and the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, as well as Crimson Tide, for which he was nominated for an ASC award. 20 years ago, Wolski photographed The Crow, a -a one-of-a-kind thriller based on James Obar's comic book. The Crow tells the story of Eric Draven, played by Brandon Lee, a musician who comes back from the dead to avenge his own murder and that of his beloved fiancé. What could have been just another vigilante movie becomes, in Wolski and director Alex Proyas' hands, a visionary sci-fi film packed with awe-inspiring visuals that have proven highly influential in the decades since The Crow's release. Today, Darius is here to revisit that film and tell us a little about his artistic intentions and how he achieved them. Uh, So, Darius, thanks for being here. Uh, Let's start with a little background. This was your first feature film with director Alex Proyas, but you had worked together before then, right? Um, How did you guys first get together? Yeah, we worked... There was a time I was doing a lot of music videos and commercials. There was a whole generation of us that were desperately trying to make movies, but... We can only get a job in videos and then eventually commercials and and it was a very kind of creative time in music videos. We were taking a lot of chances and but uh, all we had in our minds to make movies. So that was just like basically a, a training ground to eventually get your first film going. So uh, I met Alex probably like three, four years before and uh, we've done a lot of commercials. And uh, Alex always talked about a movie. Uh, he had this script of, for the film that we did later called Dark City. That originally was this kind of student project, you know, <laughs> very, very esoteric and uh, existential Kafka. Uh, and uh, said that he was trying to pull this off the ground, and then, and then Ed Pressman approached him to do Crow. So uh, I never grew up in the comic book culture because I come from Eastern Europe and it just just wasn't it. It wasn't part of my upbringing. And uh, coming to America, I just realized how big of a big of a thing it is here. So uh, I was never crazy about those like mainstream Superman movies made at the time because they were a little bit. Uh, just not really up to my aesthetics, you know, even though they're very popular commercially. And I came from Europe. We got along with Alex based on basically movies we loved. We always loved film noir. We loved we loved French Wave. We loved Russian movies. He was a big fan of Tarkovsky, so I so was I. And uh, and of course we were big fans of, of Ridley because Ridley just came up with. Uh, with Alien and Blade Runner, which were just the most kind of game-changing movies at the time. So these were our standards, you know, that's what we were trying to live up to. And here comes this dark, 
obscure comic book called Crow, you know, so. So we talked about it quite a bit. And at that time, Alex was very, very, very sought after commercial director. So we had a lot of pull and advertising was also in a very kind of adventurous stage at the time because they were recruiting us from music videos to just introduce the new look for advertising. So we used to do a lot of commercials that were black and white or completely desaturated, very dark. I remember we did this campaign for American Express, what happens with your credit card when when a thief steals it, so we shot it at night in New Orleans, story, obscure alleyways, rain, bars, seedy bars. <laughs> of course, didn't fly very well <laughs> with American Express, but they were big commercials. They were like exercises for Crow. Everything we did was an exercise for Crow. <laughs> oh, not even the Crow, just for certain, just to find, define a new look, just which wasn't really a new look, it was just basically a response to what was going on at the time, you know. So I was always inspired by film noir, by, by Ridley, by what was coming out of England at the time. Always inspired by what was happening. American movies from 70s, like Connie Hall, Gordon Willis, they were our heroes, you know. And Alex always had a lot of kind of surreal fantasy element elements to it. He just loved that. Uh, and Alex was very savvy with visual effects. Even in commercials, we used to use like old-fashioned reprojections, miniatures. All this was an exercise for if, if we get a chance to make a film, you know. Well, that, that jumps ahead to something I was going to ask about later, but I'll ask now since you brought it up, which is, you know, the, the movie has some really impressive visual effects, but this is you know, in the very early days of CGI, so I'm assuming that a lot of the effects work was done the old-fashioned way with miniature, miniatures and projection and things like that. And I was wondering how big a part of your job on the movie was figuring out how to achieve what you wanted in terms of your lighting in conjunction with those effects? It just, we were very hands-on. The miniatures were done in DreamQuest, the company that actually James Cameron used for Avatar. But I was there, I lit all the miniatures myself. And of course we did not have huge financial resources, so everything was basically figuring out how we do it. The car chase is basically, most of the car chase is done in miniatures. We had a miniature cars that size that didn't look real. So how do you make it real? You keep it very dark, you make a headlights flare so the image is not clear enough, so it's abstract enough, but yet powerful. So put the camera on like skateboard dolly and that was too smooth, so we put some push pins on so, so the camera has this sh shake, so it feels like, feels like you're really hand-holding this camera somewhere on the side of the car and following those cars. And just cr making everything more, very dynamic, dark, flary, you get away with lack of resources, you know. The problem now is the CG, you could everything, make everything perfect, they'll say, okay, it's a great helicopter, but it's not that exciting anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, even in terms of keeping everything dark to sort of, uh, you know, make up for your limited resources, I was surprised reading an interview with Preuss to read that the sort of final action scene that takes place in, you know, I I can't remember if it's a church or if it's like, you know, that, that final thing that, you know, he said there was basically nothing there. Like, you guys didn't even really have a set. 
what we had, yeah, truly we had like five, four columns. We had the, the famous door, which, you know, the poster when he, a door opens and the rain behind when he walks in. We had this big door, which was one thing, looking one way. And uh, then we had all the church benches. And then we had this, it wasn't even a translite, it was like a backing, some old backing that, that had the shapes of a Gothic, you know, Gothic uh, windows that we backlit. And a lot of smoke, a lot of black, and, and that, that was it, yeah. And then all of a sudden we had to shoot the, the beginning opening scene is nice because control, because it's, it's, you can just control the whole thing, but then eventually you have to shoot the whole fight scene. There's gunshots and stuff, and so, but we did it, you know, it's all about not showing. And, and it, it's a rule that applies it's a rule that I wish people would apply more now because then later talking to like Dexanuk who produced Jaws, I mean the reason the first Jaws is so so great is that you don't see the shark. But the reason you don't see the shark because shark didn't work. Right. <laughs> people forget about that. It mm -hmm. just didn't work. The whole animatronic shark in Jaws did not work. They waste so much time. And the best scene ever done in Jaws is when they're sitting on the boat and comparing their wounds and scars from, you know. Mm -hmm. And that was completely improvised because shark didn't work and they had to shoot something. Right. <laughs> so people forget about, you know, how the great things happen in cinema. You know? Well, that kind of leads me to another question that I was going to ask later, but I'll ask it now, which is, you know, after this movie, you went on to do, you know, some very big budget movies. Again, you know, like I mentioned Prometheus and the Pirates movies and things like that. And I was wondering how your job changes as a cinematographer and if you feel like in some ways, I mean, I was wondering if you prefer one type of filmmaking or another, like, in other words, do you think that having limited resources sometimes does, you know, encourage more creativity? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and I still have the same approach to, to, to making movies, even though there are much bigger budgets and stuff. And, and uh, working with Ridley right now, Ridley is very, very, very sufficient very cautious about money. I mean, Prometheus we did in 80 days. We just finished Exodus, which is two and a half hour epic we shot in 80 days. You know? So it's just super fast. And that's England, Spain, Canary Island. And, um, and the pirates, you know, f of course, increasing and they got bigger and bigger because of the success of the film. So then you're falling into this trap that, you know, all of a sudden they give you everything. But... Uh, but still, the challenges are so huge, so you still feel like you, you know, <laughs> like you're doing the same film. Mm -hmm. We always do the same film. It's just, it never changes, you know. I mean, at least that's how I operate. You know, I'm, I'm sure there's other people who, who do, they have this distinction between big movies, small movies. I don't think there's a difference, you know. Well, getting back to that idea of how dark you kept everything in The Crow, I mean, something else that, uh, really impressed me about it watching it recently was it does have that incredibly dark look and yet you also have to keep the audience acclimated and oriented in some pretty complicated action sequences and things like that and I was wondering if that was a challenge when on the one hand you're trying not to show things but you have to show something where people will completely be lost. Well I mean that's yeah I mean that's constant constant collaboration with Alex it's like what we see what we don't see he loves the dark but he, the, you still have to tell the story. So there was always the, 
there's always this this thing that when it matters, you should see something, yeah. And, and it becomes more powerful then. And you mentioned you know some of the advertising work you'd done being in black and white and everything like that. And I really like the the palette in this movie where it is in a lot of ways it's almost like a black and white movie, except you kind of have these bursts of of color, especially kind of blood red, and then there's some you know fiery oranges and things like that. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about you know what you had in mind in terms of of color going in. Well, we desperately wanted to make a black and white film, which we couldn't, of course, because that was a big no-no. And uh, Arranging Bull, which was a masterpiece, was studio figure that the reason it lost money is because it was black and white, but it's still one of the best <laughs> movies ever. But that's what happens when you make a film, you know, the later people find out that that's the classic. Right. <laughs> Uh, so there was a huge no-no to shoot anything black and white in those days. Uh, and we were doing, you know, at, at that stage in advertising, because everything went to, you know, wasn't super high def for, for big screen, there was a technology already with color, digital color correction that you could desaturate images, that you can control contrast and color. Uh, you could not do this at film at the time. The only great film that was kind of our, something we were trying to live up to a little bit was uh, 1984 that Roger Deakins shot in England. Uh, and that had this beautiful, beautiful desaturated quality, but that was done optically. And we knew how to do it, but again, on our budget, it was completely out of the question. I mean, because that really requires optical printers and stuff. But we loved that film so much, it was just, let's just, and we were able to do this in commercials because you could just basically this in film we couldn't. So, so I was stressing over it. And there was another thing to desaturate color was this E and R process, the silver reten retention process that Storaro brought with Coppola to, to to the states. And and Clint Eastwood was doing that. Then uh, later later Spielberg and Janusz did in Saving Private Ryan. But again, that was prohibitively expensive. We couldn't afford it. <laughs> so, so we did. So I figured something really shoestring. I just put the, I put a sepia filter on the camera. So everything was brown. And then in the printing lights, you take all, take all the all the browns out. So this way, you basically kind of like eliminating color as much as you can. But the trick to it was that because you're putting so much blue to get rid of sepia warm color into the print that anything blue was screaming blue. So the, the rule was when we art directed the film with Alex McDowell, we didn't have any, any, any blue on the set. To the point that sometimes smoke machine, some smoke was bluer and that was already screaming. So we no, can't use the smoke machine. The guy who was doing a slate, the second assistant, had a blue jacket, so in dailies was like screaming <laughs> because you know printing lights were so altered, you know. So we kind of achieved it, yeah. Uh, and you know, and, and it's and it's it's also our direction. Our direction was very powerful. You know, his costume was black and his makeup was white. The buildings, the whole set, streets were the buildings were painted black, or just like really tuned colors and stuff. 
And then another thing we figured is like, okay, if everything is monochromatic, normally when people have flashbacks, flashbacks are usually black and, black and white or something. So we said, let's just do it completely opposite. Mm -hmm. <laughs> let's just go completely other way. Let's just, flashbacks be really colorful and vibrant because the whole film is monochromatic. So then I used like some slow film stock. I pushed it, I think, two stops because more you push it, your saturation gets much bigger. So. It was all still optically done, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you mentioned... And not perfectly, because there was already te technology to make it better, but we, didn't, we did not have, we couldn't afford it. You mentioned that, you know, you, you were not somebody who grew up loving comic books or anything like that, but I was wondering, did you and Alex use uh, the James O'Barr comic book at all as any kind of visual reference? I mean, were there things you were trying to recreate from that look, or...? Some, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we did, yeah. I mean, the, the whole... The look of Brandon and yeah, and then you mentioned you know uh, Gordon Willis and Conrad Hall and film noir and things like that. Um, you know, I was wondering were there other specific movies that you and Alex looked at or talked about preparing, or was it more not, sort of a general tone? Not really, because for? it's like because there was enough movies that we loved together mm -hmm. that we didn't have to reference them directly. It just kind of it's not just. I mean, Blade Runner, of course, was always in my mind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The only thing I did is because Blade Runner f was famous from from those xenon lights at the time, because everything is just there was this gaffer Doug Hart who invented those xenon lights that were just super follow spots and super you know shafty and stuff, and that's what really just that was like a first time was used and really really used it all over the everywhere and it's fantastic and then and but then of course we've used it so many times in commercials so it's like, okay let's just not do xenon lights let's just not do it let's just not let's just but you still want to have it look like this so let's come up with something so i remember i built those lights they actually you can see them in the shot in certain scenes i just because it's also it's good to be able to see the light you know where it comes from i always believe in that so i built this kind of round light with five aircraft carrier super narrow bulbs. And they were all, because they were 24 volts, they had to be wired up a certain way, and if you just didn't wire them right, you should blow the bulbs, it's really complicated. And, um, but they had this great shaft, they had this really beam kind of, it consisted of five little streams, but there was, there was a very strong beam. And then I think like five years later, Ari, Ari like built ruby light. That's exactly what, what, <laughs> what I did. Well, I wanted to ask about the way you lit uh, Brandon Lee, the lead character, because he's a kind of you know supernatural character. And did you have any kind of, for lack of a better word, philosophy about how you were going to light him and how you're going to present him? It's it, it's not. Well, the makeup was super. He was very, very graphic and and, 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 and light. So, so you had to be very careful that because if you put too much light on him, it's gonna explode. But because everything is so dark, you have to be you have to be uh, more subtle with it, and you have to be careful about his makeup because makeup was very heavy. So, you just had to watch for that. But but basically, it was just integrating him in the space. You know, that's how it is. You know. I mean, it's a really interesting look that the the movie has, and in that it's, you know, it's one of the few movies 
I should say one of the few because in a way it was very influential. A lot of movies kind of ripped this look off. But, you know, it's got at the time, I think it was one of the few movies that had a look that could sort of be described simultaneously as being beautiful and, you know, gritty. Um, and was that something that was... It's a great couple of things because that's, that's what I always try to explain to people. Like, what does gritty mean? Does it mean badly photographed? No. <laughs> right. Or, yeah. Because it's, people have those terms, you know, if it's gritty, means bad looking. If it's good looking or it's too glossy, it's just like, it's not. It's just, it's, you have to find something. It's movies are well photographed or they're not, you know, and that's, that's how I look at it. And, and, uh, and more stuff you keep in shadow, more mysterious it is and more you want to see it. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's as old as, as, as out of cinema. Just mainstream Hollywood keeps forgetting about it because it's commodity. It's like the producer will say, oh, I'm paying this actor, whatever, $20 million, so we want to see his blue eyes. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's I'm paying for it, so I want to see it. So it's like, it's like if I'm going for dinner, I have all this money, so I'm going to have surf and turf. You know, I'm going to have a steak and the lobster. Let's get everything. Maybe not. Maybe just a piece of meat is fine, or just a piece of, you know. Mm -hmm. It's all about restraint. I mean, that's what art is. It's not about putting everything. I always sometimes say, compare some filmmaking into, like, making pasta with too many ingredients, you know. Like, good pasta is just few ingredients perfectly selected, you know. Uh, well, I wanted to ask about a few specific moments in the movie, starting with, there's a great shot about a half hour into the film where you reveal that Brandon Lee has disappeared into thin air by doing a 360-degree pan. And I was wondering, how do you execute a shot like that when you've basically eliminated the possibility of hiding your crew and your lights anywhere? There's always a way to do it. I don't particularly exactly remember how we did it, but we do it all the time. I mean, you, yeah, there's always a way. There's... In this particular case, I, can't, I don't remember, but there's, a, there's always a way to hide the lights and there's always a way to, yeah. Well, you know, something else, there's... What, 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 can you just remind me which scene was it exactly? Ah, uh, it's, there's just, there's, it's, it's sort of early on, there's a shot, there's a, uh, there's like a... Is it in the pawn shop? Yeah, it's outside the pawn shop. It's outside of it. There's like, a, like the cops sort of show up and then, you know, Brandon Lee has just been there, but then everyone's like kind of looking around for him and the camera just goes all around 360 degrees, shows the whole alleyway, and you don't see him anymore. I don't know how it is. <laughs> that is, it has been his 20 years. But, uh, but there's, there's always a way of doing stuff like that. Um, well, let's, let's talk about it. There's another scene that I was kind of curious about because it, it's, a, it's a very striking scene where the little girl who's friends with uh, the Brandon Lee character is reunited with him for the first time in the movie. And... You introduce Brandon Lee's character as a shadow on the wall, and then you present him in backlight. And it's a very powerful effect that you know really nicely conveys the emotional state of the little girl. But it also occurred to me that it might have been something that was dictated by the tragic circumstances of the shooting. No, no, it that, was always planned that way. That was planned that way. Okay. That he was still he was still around. Oh, okay, yeah, I was. No, no, that that scene with his shadow. Mm -hmm. That's he's still around. Yeah. Were there things I mean, we just, always we always loved that stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, Alex loved it. I loved it. Just you know. German expression is, I mean, it's, it's not, we didn't invent it, that. that's been done, you know. Um, well, do, you know, because I mean, just to remind people who are listening, I mean, there was, you know, Brandon Lee died in the middle of shooting. Did that, I don't know where, when that happened, you know, how much you guys had done. I mean, were there things that you had to kind of reconceive after that happened? Yes, yes, we did, we did, we did. Uh, 
it wasn't middle of the film. We all we almost finished. Yeah. We almost finished, and uh, then we did we did the, the first poor man's first face replacement, which was which was done. Uh, we because there was a lot of lightning in this film and silhouettes and stuff, so we found the footage of of his face, you know, there was very strong lightning, and we basically did the scene around it, knowing that we have this close-up, we brought the double fully silhouette, and then when lightning strikes, we just basically on the flash, we optically put his face in. So it's, it was a very crude way of face replacement. I think we did it several times. Um, you know, another piece of the film I want to ask you about is the massive shootout that happens in the main villain's lair. You know, it's a huge, almost kind of like John Woo-esque Explosion of, of violence and it's very elaborately choreographed. Sam Peckinpah. Yeah, Sam Peckinpah. Before John Woo. John Woo. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll give, give credit to Peckinpah. <laughs> um, you know, this. Like this... they say, it's a Michael Bay shot. No, no, it's, it's <laughs> the shot from right stuff, you know, and when the astronauts are coming out. You know. Right. <laughs> um, well, the, you, you know, but you've got, as in Peckinpah or Woo, wherever, you've got a lot of characters, a lot of action, and, you know, it wasn't a big budget film. So, how do you stage and cover something like that? I mean, did you have, were you using multiple cameras? How many? Cameras? Multiple cameras. We did have a second unit, but second unit was shooting simultaneously with us. So we had all the monitors, all the cameras. So we were lining it up and then it was, okay, you guys go. Boom, 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 boom. We were watching that. How long do you have to shoot something like that? That took a while. That probably was a week between first and second unit. How long was the how long was the shoot in general? Do you remember how long you had? And yeah, it was probably like sixty five days, and then after the whole thing happened after an accident, we went back for another. We had a bit of a carte blanche after that, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so we shot for another four weeks. Wow! So you actually shot longer on the Crow than on Exodus or or Prometheus. Yeah. But it's. Uh, Right now, it's more experience, and also you have, you have resources. You know, you have that's where you can move fast. You have you have four good camera crews. You have great art department. You have great support. You have great you know you have private plane to take you from A to B. You know, that's how you save money by spending it. You know. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of experience, I mean, this was a the Crow was a fairly early feature for you. Um, do you remember any particular challenges, or you know, was it? Was it difficult? Was well, it challenges. We did we did work very long hours. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We did we did work very long hours, and and uh, <clears throat> logistics were difficult because we were shooting in North Carolina in uh, February, oh. and we've been told it never snows there, but of course it did. So so we were doing a lot of rain, and rain was freezing up on us, which was pretty. Pretty dreadful, yeah. Uh, I remember doing the because all the streets were painted black, so we used to put this very strong backlight. And and after the rain, all of a sudden, I see just my lights reflecting in the building. I was like, "What is it? It's the ice!" So all of a sudden, the, all the sides of the buildings were were sheets of ice. So you could see little bulbs reflecting. So we had to put a diffusion on the light quickly, so it became soft source. 
you're shooting. But you don't know until that temperature. It's all fine until the temperature drops down. You realize that you see lights reflected in the black building. <laughs> Another thing was when we did the dolly trucks, big dolly trucks. You start, you start pushing dollies. Like how come it's so bumpy? It's basically because we made rain. The rain freezes on the dolly truck. So we used to do. I remember that we used to do camera, blowtorch. The blowtorch dies. The the truck dolly truck. Slay it in action. So were you, you were, you were painting these buildings and the streets and everything. Did, were you on some kind of back lot there in North Carolina? Did, was it like Dino De Laurentiis' old place or something like that? Yeah. Okay. that that's exactly what it was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how much of the movie was shot on the back lot and on sets? And did you ever have, did you have to go on location, on actual locations at all? Or was everything? There was a little bit of location for the car chase scene. Okay. Because this lot was only one street, which we... Redesigned very cleverly for five or six different locations, you know? <laughs> but it was one street, and there were some sets that were attached to the, to the uh, you know in, in, interior sets that were part of the exterior lot. Yeah, and then we went to this. There's a scene, this pier when we're throwing the one of the villains up in the water, and so there was on the pier, uh, uh, and there was like this harbor industrial area. That's where we did the car. Then we did the piercing, and then we also did the parts of the car chase. But we didn't have any resources to do proper car chase, you know, it was just... Everything was very, very kind of... Did it feel like the resources... Was there a huge difference between the kind of scale you had to work with versus what you had been doing on commercials? Like when you did the commercials and stuff with Alex or just or with whoever... No, it's actually... This, it's a great story there because we were trying to put our budget together and uh, and my gaffer at the time who now is a pretty famous cinematographer Claudio Miranda yeah. <laughs> Got he's it. doing okay he's doing all right <laughs> and and uh, and Claudio is putting the budget he's, he's always always very thorough very computers and stuff and he's showing we're going through a lighting package we have to cut we have to cut and he says you know the whole lighting package for the whole movie is half what we used on the Mercedes commercial three weeks ago <laughs> for two weeks. Wow. Did yeah. you feel like, you know, you and you and Alex had been, as you were saying, you know, kind of the commercials and music videos are all, were, you know, almost, you know, getting to try out things that you really wanted to do on features. I mean, did you feel at the end of the day with The Crow, you were able to implement a lot of the ideas you, you wanted to? Yeah, it was basically... That's what was fantastic about working with Alex, because we've done so much work together on other things. So there was complete shorthand when we started shooting, in terms of the look of the film and the style. We just, we just didn't have to discuss it. We we're just having ideas. So how about that? Oh great. How about that? Okay, great. You know, that's what it was. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, the movie's a great vehicle for a cinematographer in a way because it kind of of the stylization that it calls for and everything. And um, but I was, I'm always curious when I interview people who've worked on movies that have kind of become classics or cult classics or whatever term you want to use, you know, did you have any sense when you were working on it that it was a movie that could turn into something iconic? No, it's... The <laughs> no, plus also we were just, you know, there was a huge tragedy with yeah. it too. So first, you were, first you're just making your first movie. You're just, you're just basically taking all the stuff that you had in your brain to put, you just want to put everything on the screen because this is your only chance, you know, that's how... A little bit different now, but 
But that's that's how you. But that's what one should do when they're starting out. You should put everything you have, everything. Plus, also when you're not working. I don't know how with everybody else, but fairly creative people. They are, you always make your own film in your mind. So you you see things. Oh, that would be crazy film. Or that looks great. You know, so you always have those ideas. Your brain absorbs all this stuff, and then when you all of a sudden some, someone gives you a canvas, you just throw it all in. You know, it comes out of you. It's just don't even. You know. Well, it's funny. You know, you mentioned that Alex had the idea for Dark City before you guys did The Crow and had talked with you about it. And I almost feel like, in a way, you guys. With, because of that, because Dark City was in his mind beforehand, you know, you almost made two first films together, you know, in terms of what you're talking about, which is pouring everything, you know, they both feel like movies that just have every idea the filmmakers ever had is just poured into those movies, you know, maybe Dark City even more so. Um, so I wanted to finish off a little just by asking a little bit about Dark City, because that's a movie that, uh, you know, I and a lot of other people really love, you know, when, so did... Did the success of The Crow enable, is that what enabled you guys to then yeah. make Dark City? Yeah. And did, did, did the movie evolve from the discussions you had had with him before? Very much so. Mm-hmm. Very much so. You know, it was, was uh, yeah, very much. It became like, how there was much more, consi- uh, became much more of a conventional story because the original script was very, 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 very artsy and very kind of, dreamy and unexplained, you know, it's like, it's hard to... But the whole concept, you know, was always... Alex, you know, is a great visionary. Did your, um, did the way you guys worked together or the way you communicated change at all going to that next level up on Dark City or was it pretty much firmly in place? No, there were different ideas, but yeah. It was from in place, yeah. That was a, the Dark City was, because I was already experimenting a lot with, with the, the street lights. You know, now everybody's doing it, it's pretty common, but uh, back in the day, there was this rule that there's a tungsten light and there's an HMI light. There's, and if you use a sodium vapor light that's not full spectrum, it's kind of yellowish, you shouldn't be using that, or the fluorescent light is green, you should always change the fixtures. There was all this, all those rules that you used to go to the supermarket and change all the tubes. And, and, and I've, I think I did already s- a couple of pictures with Tony and we started using sodium vapors and, and I just love that orange color. You know, like, so when we built the set, I said, let's just put the real street lights, even though we could put normal proper lights because it was set. So but we put real sodium vapor lights in, in all you know, fixtures on the stage. So we basically brought the street lighting into the stage to make it more realistic and, I mean realistic, more, not realistic, more people can relate to it, you know. So it looks like, you know, when you see the, the news footage, that's what it looked like, street was orange, right? Because the guy cannot change the street for something. Uh, well, I guess my last question that I want to finish with is kind of a more general one because you've mentioned... You know, you talked about working multiple times with Alex. You've mentioned that you worked a couple times with Tony Scott. You you now are working, you worked several times with Ridley Scott. You know, you guys did Counselor, which I think is like the greatest movie of the last oh, five you. years. I love that movie so much. So you know, and then you did. You, you've you've had numerous collaborations. You know, working with directors over and over again. And I'm kind of I'm always curious. You know, what as a cinematographer, what do you think? 
makes for a good relationship between a director and a cinematographer. I mean, what, what are you looking for from them and what do you think a good director wants from you? Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I'm so fortunate because all the directors I work with, I really respect, you know. Uh, and they all have their own very strong, you know, ideas about what films should be like. They have very stamp. I mean, Proyas has a stamp. Tim definitely has a stamp. And Ridley definitely has a stamp. Tony had a stamp. Gore Verbinski has a stamp. You know, they're, they're, they're filmmakers. They're really strong. So, you know, it's kind of... Maybe I was lucky because everything I contributed was to basically... We were just on the same page. I mean, there are moments... I mean, I was pretty fortunate in my career, but there are moments that you just completely think differently, and then it's really hard. That's really hard. It's just like, you know, for somebody, apples are red, for other people, apples are green, and, you know, you just like, and that's really difficult. But I was, you know, just everybody I work with, it's pretty, it's pretty, pretty amazing, yeah. Just did a small film with Bob Zemeckis, which we had, we had a great time, too. Really good time. But again, it's respect. I mean, he's done all his movies, you know, so I come in, I know his work, he knows my work, and we just try to make something out of it, you know. Well, thanks so much for coming in and talking with me. No, uh, absolutely great. This has been Jim Hempel and Darius Wolski ASC talking about The Crow for the American Cinematographer Podcast. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.